I was waiting for a rescue boat for a while. You know, I, I threw up the flare. Yeah. I, you know, I was floating in the ocean with my flotation device, getting cold, feeling like I was dying. Rescue boat never came. So uh, I decided I'm going to swim for the shore. Right. And that was my only option. Right. Because look, because you didn't actually need a boat. Right. I mean, so think this is what we. This is what we all, well, sure, look, a boat would have been nice, but you didn't need one, right? And, and right, because you swam to the shore, like you're okay, right? You, di you didn't drown because there was no boat. It was close. <laughs> right, but you didn't though, right? So, so what got you through that? Did you get through that without a boat, without someone else rescuing you? Yes, you did. And what, what, what is the reasonable truth-centered upshot of all that? It's an increase in confidence with yourself right? That if you feel in a desperate position again, which you might, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. You might, I might, we both might tomorrow morning, right? Then you can feel heart and, hey, I felt like this before and no rescue boat came and I'm still here. This episode is brought to you by Vimeo. I've been a pro user of Vimeo basically since I started my production company in 2010. Vimeo is for creative professionals like me and I use it in several different ways. For example, it's a place for me to upload my videos with a password for my clients to be able to review and download the work I'm doing for them. Uh, there's no compression, crushing of black colors or oversaturation like what I get when I upload a YouTube video. My clients get the full 4K resolution HD as it was intended. I also use it to host and broadcast live events. I also use Vimeo for my portfolio, case studies, and it never has annoying pre-roll ads. I can create a customized player and keep people on my landing page so they don't get distracted and go down the rabbit hole watching someone else's stuff. What you may not know about Vimeo is that you can use it if you're in HR or if you own a company. You can put all of those onboarding videos all in one place, a nice, tidy, professional-looking uh, playlist or playboard where people can consume and understand or download all the new training videos all in one place. You could also do the same thing if you teach a course. Imagine putting all your videos behind a paywall, charging for it, and then you know sending people the link with a password. Need a videographer, creative director, or editor? Vimeo lets you post jobs and find creative professionals. There's a ton more options, so I would suggest checking them out. This episode is brought to you in part by our friends at WeWork. The reason I chose to have an office at WeWork is based a lot on flexibility. I started a decade ago as a one-person company, and now we have a growing team. WeWork has the space and budget for all my needs. From hot desks for one, to a full office setup with multiple people, I can grow, scale up or down whenever I need. I also love the community and other small business and entrepreneurs who work here. It's super collaborative and everyone is in the same boat, willing to help each other out. If you're interested in a tour, visit WeWork.com, search by your city and zip code for a WeWork near you. Now let's get back to our episode. Hello, I'm Dr. Paul Conti, and I am a psychiatrist, and I am also the author of Trauma, the Invisible Epidemic, and you are watching Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott. Everyone, I'm Brian Elliott. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Brand. Dr. Paul Conti, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I usually ask my guests, how did you get this job? Well, 
you know, at some point when I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life, I guided myself towards medical school. And once in medical school, I saw that you could like really be a doctor and also use life experience and really think about people and get to know them in a way that could really help them. And, and that's what attracted me to psychiatry. And once becoming a psychiatrist and seeing the impact of trauma just across the board for so many of us in so many ways, it then led me to, I guess, take on the job of writing a book about it. That's amazing. Let's roll back the timeline just a little bit and then go all the way back. So if we just scroll back a little bit to your decision to go to medical school, put a timestamp on that. What age were you? Let's see. I would have been 24 or 25 when I decided, and then it took a couple of years uh, to get there. I had to go back and take another year of undergraduate studies and do all the pre-med courses that I had missed. And, and I probably showed up to medical school around the age of 28 or so. So that's interesting. I want to unpack that a little bit. Okay, now let's roll it back a little bit further, maybe four years or six years prior to when you graduated high school. You went into business, right? Oh, yes. So after college, right, I had always thought I was, I was always interested in business and still am. I've done some entrepreneurial things um, even after becoming a physician, but I thought that that would be my route. And um, after finishing college, I had a job in business yeah, with a, a consulting firm and I spent four years at that work and I did really enjoy it. Um, it was just kind of other things I wanted to learn and see and know and understand, and it led me in a different direction. But I enjoyed the business career, and I think it's been a foundation for some of the logical and kind of stepwise progressive thinking that I try and bring to other endeavors, including practicing medicine. Yeah, I love that. I can think about uh, some of my professors, um, and they were able to teach from real-world business experience, not just theory. I remember one of my favorites was... Uh, well, two, actually. One worked at Levi Strauss, the jeans company, and he was in marketing and actually had a degree in psychology. And he talked a lot about, you know, human behavior and buying patterns and understanding people um, kind of before, you know, uh, psychographic conversation was popular. It was mainly before that demographic. And he was talking more about psychographic, which was fascinating to me at the time. Uh, and now, of course, is a mainstay. And the other one was, uh, is it? He was at Nabisco, and it was a statistics class, and uh, and he was talking to us about standard uh, variations and how you know he helped count the chocolate chips uh, and made sure there wasn't more chips in one cookie than another, uh, and then had you know uh, launched from the professional world into teaching and whatnot. So I think there is a ton of value from having some real world experience, whether you go into business or or law, or accounting, or whatever you do of uh, medicine. Now let's go way back um, yes. to the beginning of time. What was young Paul thinking about when he was a kid? And I ask this with the context of, I think if we can generalize, there's two groups of people in my mind. One, there's uh, students, and particularly I think junior high and high school students right now. And so my son is uh, 13 and he, of course, is an active kid and he loves all the usual things, but he's also, I don't know, it's got this pressure that I don't, I didn't have as a kid to have it all figured out right away. Like to have his path set, like, okay, I know exactly what I'm doing. I know, you know, I'm going to medical school or I'm going to law school or I'm going to be a plumber. Like he has, there's this urgency somehow uh, behind these younger people that I'm sensing. And, and then there, you also have this other group of people, let's call them middle-aged people. Uh, during this great reset when, you know, 
everything's happening and they're sort of reevaluating what they're doing. I want to ask the question, like, what were you thinking about in order to help people sort of find their passion or identify what they what they ought to be doing, pursuing what what they uh, maybe is their true calling? What were you thinking about as a young kid? You know, it was probably a lot more similar to how you describe yourself, where there wasn't, at least in the era and the place that I grew up, a lot of pressure to figure all that out early. You know, I was a, a pretty anxious kid who generally was sort of high achieving academically because it sort of soothed some of the anxiety and made me feel like oh, I'm doing the right things, right? And I'm checking the right boxes and I'm going to get somewhere good, you know? And 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 that was was really... I mean, that was really it when I was younger, right? It was more once I was out in the world and realized that, you know, going through the education process and, you know, I went to different schools and I studied different things, like it didn't prepare me to really understand, you know, what it was that I that I wanted, right? And I saw this in people around me too, that we're in our early to mid-20s and we didn't really know what we wanted. And we thought that if you get yourself like somewhere that seems good, like it's a, it's a good consulting job, right? well, that, that'll answer the questions. And it really doesn't, right? It, it, there's, a, there's a process of, of introspection, of reflection, and often it's hard to go through that process, right? Because we feel like, oh, the clock is ticking and there's not enough time. And how could I lose six months? How could I lose one month, let alone six months or a couple of years to go back to school? And there's this intensity and urgency that had me feel like, oh, I'm behind the eight ball and I can't do anything differently. And I was like, 23, right? So I think that's the time when it's more relevant to like the reset now, right? Of, of stopping and thinking what, what's in me? What are the drives in me? What is it that I actually want versus the things that maybe I think that I should want or I think that I think are going to actually make me happy? There's a more simple process of taking stock of oneself and, and pursuing what's inside of a person, right? As opposed to following a bunch of shoulds, which is what I think we tend to do, especially as we become more anxious and we want to make it in the world and then the shoulds become more powerful yeah uh, there's a lot there that's it's making me think one of them is something i've talked about in this show before which is i think we have to really consider that 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 journalism advice which is considered the source you know um I, i've told the story before of my wife's father my father-in-law great guy uh probably one of the most likable people you'll know amazing manager you know, um, and not a lot of people are born with management skills, but he's really just got this propensity um, to be a great manager. And and yet uh, he told my wife, you know, as she was going through high school, that she she ought to um, take a lot of typing classes because when she's a secretary, that's going to really serve her well. And I remember even as a teacher thinking, what are you talking about? Secretary, she's probably going to run the joint like how how dare you you know and so i think you know we have to consider that he was probably born in an era uh or with a, through looking at life through a lens that that was you know not insulting to, uh, by by his standards um and so we have to be careful of the advice that we take you know you you should do this you should do that sometimes the advice could be good i don't know but in that particular case it was really off the mark yeah and we have to be most careful with what the shoulds that come from us Right, because we've gotten them from somewhere, right? Whether it's our own anxieties or things people have said to us. So questioning what's inside as much as what's outside is, is I think, just imperative, right? And and if you look even in my own situation, you know, it was it was the silver lining of a really terrible tragedy that let me rethink things. That after the loss of my brother, which I write about in the book, to suicide. 
there was so much, of course, of grief and despair, but there was also a sense that, like, how could I think that my own doors are closed to me, right? And my own life options are closed. Like this sensation of, like, I'm I'm alive and I want to do something that 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 is in accord with what's inside of me, the drives inside of me, and like I can go do that. Right. But that was a shift away from, oh, I'm too old. I can't learn something new. I'm going to be behind the eight ball. Right. There was so much inside of me that that think who was limiting me at that point. It was all me. Right. And what I had internalized and what I was telling myself. And and even though it was something tragic that led to a shift, the shift was like, wait a second. I, I can sort of honor what's inside of me and in that very kind of simple, well-grounded way, be true to w- where I want to guide myself, which was I wanted to try and go to medical school and I wanted to learn different things. I wanted to I wanted to, to help in that direct way and learn things I didn't know before. And that was a reasonable thing to do, um, even though it had seemed unreasonable under the weight of all those shoulds that really had nothing to do with my life. I'm I'm really sorry to hear about your brother. And um, and I feel that it's um, so important. You, you talk about it a lot. I've heard you speak about it and you write about it in the book, how important it is to verbalize and get trauma out there in the open as, as painful as it must be. Um, I want to go back to signals a little bit because it seems like in your case, it was this very traumatic experience that kind of rocked your world, uh, for lack of a better word, and caused you to kind of rethink everything, right? You're on this path. Uh, so you're, you're from the East Coast, right? Yes. And I, I don't, you didn't mention the consulting firm, but was it like McKinsey or something like that? Yeah, it was. It's since been acquired, but it was a it was a boutique consulting firm that, that was subsequently acquired by PricewaterhouseCoopers. So I'm sure that you were on a, a, a path of significance, you know, on your way to what was probably success. So I guess what I was I was thinking about was signals. You know, you had a, a very um, significant signal with the passing of your brother. And that I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine that. Um, but it so painful, so probably surprising. Um, how else can we tap into the signals that we should be making a change or pivoting or, you know, maybe we're on the right path or the wrong path? How do we tap into that? How do we listen to our inner voice? Yeah, we don't need a, a tragedy, right, to, to, to let us do that, right? We can't stop and reflect on what's going on inside of us. So, so after the tragedy, when I, I went and I got myself some therapy, right? We, because, you know, it's okay, I, I'm grieving, I was despairing, and I think, well, that's what you do. And I never had any experience with psychotherapy. And and yes, it helped me understand, like, what is what is this process of grief? And what am I feeling? And it, it helped validate a lot of it. But But a lot of what was discussed in therapy was all what was already in my mind. Right? It was already there that, hey, I don't really think I want this path. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful of it and I appreciate many aspects of it. I don't think this is what I want. Okay, well, what else might you want? Well, I have thoughts about that, right? And, oh, well, why aren't you doing that? Well, I think I, I'm 
too old to do it or too I'll fall behind. And so then I started talking about anxieties and insecurities and, you know, the performance pressure I always put on myself was like, get an A with whatever you do. Well, if you, if you're getting an A in your consulting job that you don't really want, then you want, I want to keep doing that. Right. I mean, it seemed like there's a failure in not doing that. I'm going to disappoint people, which wasn't, you know, easy for me to do. Right. I'm going to take chances that maybe I'll try to go to medical school and I won't get in. Right. Or maybe if I get in, I won't make it right. I never had any science education. I didn't know. And I had to have the confidence in myself to say, look, I can take these chances because I do. I think I can do it. And if I don't do it, it's, it's not the end of the world. Right. Then I'll figure other things out. And, and in taking that pressure off of me, it, it let me make those decisions. And again, we don't need a, a, a tragedy to, to, to bring us to that point. It's just listening to what, I mean, a lot of times what I'm talking about with a person that helps them forward are things that have been in their head thousands and thousands of times. It's just that if you don't put words to it, you don't allow to look in the scary place, right? Then you don't get to take away the scariness of it. It's like, what's the worst that can happen? Uh, I leave my job. I, I don't. I can't handle the science, or I don't. I, I, I don't. I, I can't handle blood, or whatever. I can't become a doctor. I'm like, okay, then you, then you, then you figure something else out, right? This isn't a litmus test on your validity as a human being, right? And I, and I needed to tell myself that and to also take stock that I was, I had some depression at the, the work that I was doing and I wasn't taking care of myself in healthy ways of saying, well, where does that go? Right. If you extrapolate that forward from what may mid twenties on forward, like that's not going anywhere good. And why is that there? And I could link it to the roots of just of unhappiness, right? Cause I'm not taking good care of myself in a sense of what I'm doing with my time and my energy. So then it's not surprising if I'm drinking too much, eating poorly, not sleeping enough, like, you know, in a way it all made sense in like an, oh, like I should go do that. Right. But we've got to reflect, write, talk, Right. These are ways like sometimes it's helpful to do with a professional, but sometimes we don't even need that. Just like, hey, what's going on inside of me? Can I acknowledge my own thoughts and feelings and then like start thinking about them a little bit? Like it's remarkable how much that can do for all of us. I think that's exceptional advice. And I, I want to underscore just so people don't miss it, because I think it can be really subtle. What I hear you saying is that we need to be taking this inventory of how we're feeling. Um, frequently, you know, as much as we need to. And that could mean verbally saying things out loud. Maybe you're looking at yourself in the mirror and you're saying, man, I look like shit right now. And I feel like it, what is happening? What am I doing? What behavior is causing this? Is it work? You know, is it outside stress, anxiety, uh, but, or also, you know, uh, journaling is great or talking to a friend or a professional, like you're saying, just getting it out. Uh, and it reminds me, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in film and I love movies. Any scary movie that you watch, correct me if I'm wrong, is really, really scary until you see the monster. And then when you see it, it's like, oh, okay, not so bad. But it was the, it was the not seeing it. It was the, it was the shadow behind the building or the, sure. the sound of it, sure. imagination of what it could be. Uh, that was the most scary. Absolutely. It's, it's like, the, you know, the old a story about like the child in the clothes tree, right? Which actually happened when I was a kid, right? There's a clothes tree and it looks like a monster, right? In the low light of night. And then it gets scarier and scarier and scarier, right? Until I or my brother would yell, like, oh my gosh. And then like parent comes in, turns on the light and you see that's not a monster, 
right? That's just a closed tree. It's, it's, it's not menacing to me. And that extra bit of curiosity, allowing ourselves that extra bit of curiosity about our own thoughts, right, can be so revealing, but we often don't go that extra bit. Like you use the example of looking in the mirror and a person looking in the mirror and thinking, oh, I look like shit, right? You, you know, the vast majority of times that happens, right, is because the, there's something going on, the person doesn't feel good about themselves. There's the idea of like, wait, when I look in the mirror, if I like what I see or don't like what I see, is that actually related to what I'm seeing? Or is it related to how I'm feeling about myself? And people, wow, yeah. When I look in the mirror and I feel like shit about myself, it's because, and then there's like, I really don't like this job or like this relationship isn't treating me fairly or like, you know, I'm accepting abuse in a relationship, right? Or, you know, I, I'm just, there's just something inside of me that I'm not letting come out. I want to live differently, do something differently. And then that's why I feel that way. I mean, think about the information that comes from that. That's information about truth of why we do or don't like what we see when we look in the mirror and how that is most often not about what we see, but it's something about our lives. It's trying to tell us something. And if we just acknowledge that, right? Then we have information we didn't have before. It's like turning on the light and seeing the clothes tree, or, you know, it's not the buildup anymore. Now you see the monster. O okay. Like we can deal with that, right? But we can't deal with something that we're afraid to look at, right? And that's where trauma comes into play, even if it's not big T trauma. Like it's, a, say the trauma that I, th I was experiencing of being where I thought I should be, right? I did well in college. I got great grades. I got a great job and, and I'm supposed to be happy and I'm not, right? And then I felt lousy about myself. Like I felt like a failure, right? And, and I didn't want to admit that to myself that I might have to backtrack and do them some, some things different. It all seems so daunting and so shameful right? So even that kind of, of trauma, feeling badly about ourselves, takes us away from the truth. And what I really needed to do was look at myself and say, you want to go off and do these things and go try and do them, right? And you don't have to be afraid of that. And I think, and I speak from personal experience, um, that's how we can also kind of feel stuck, how, how we feel hopeless. Because you also start, you start doing um, these sort of mental gymnastics or uh, this calculation in your head and you think of the sunk cost. Well, I just spent the last four years and a hundred thousand dollars on this education and what, I'm just going to scrap it and, you know, reset. No, I can't do that. Right. You think to yourself and you think, well, I'm, I'm stuck, I'm screwed. And so, you know, you, you hunker down or, or you press forward miserable thinking you have no options, but really that's a distortion, right? Sure. And, and think about how much negative self-talk goes along with what you just said, right? How many times does that person say, oh, I messed up, right? With stupid decisions, or I can't even be happy with this, right? I mean, the negative self-talk is over and over and over again, which makes it harder to do anything different, right? Because in a sense, we're kicking ourselves when we're down. And if, if you feel that way, and then all that happens is you get kicked, even if it's by yourself, how, how would you feel better? Yeah. Yeah. Uh... Well, and if you're like me, so I got, I got this really funny advice from my friend and mentor, Seth Godin. And Seth reminded me, he said, you know, if you work for yourself, uh, you probably have the world's worst boss. And he's right, because I'm, I'm extra hard on myself and I'm very critical. And my family is fantastic. My wife is such a support, such a trooper, and yet I do, I beat myself up when I feel like I'm not successful because I think, well, 
I'm just taking my family on this roller coaster ride that they, that they technically didn't really sign up for. And yeah, we have some highs, but we also have some lows. And when it's low, ooh, it's really rough on everyone else. I mean, I, I could literally live out of a cardboard box. I could eat saltine crackers, you know, f for three months. I, I could survive, but like to, to make them go through what I'm going through, it's mentally and emotionally painful for me. Cause I think I'm becoming this burden. I'm not, you know, I'm not living up to the promises that I feel like I've made to them. So it's difficult. Right. And then as you're doing that, you're taking the, your view of yourself and your role with your family, right? Which is rich and deep and multifaceted, right? And instead of seeing that whole picture, right, you, you, you distill it down to just the moment when you feel inadequate, right? Because you hinge the whole conception on one thing, right? Oh, this particular thing isn't going as well, and it's maybe making some distress for them. And then you hinge the whole story of self on that instead of thinking about the, the broader picture of even of your own fulfillment and your own ability to like be who and how you want to be, which has got to make you better with your family. Right. And the fact that overall, I'm, I'm guessing things are actually going really well. Right. But, but you miss all of that in the moment because we go down to just seeing ourselves this way. And then we build the story and all that negative self-talk about it. And it's like playing a game where, you know, if you win, you get a dollar, you know, it's a coin flip, right? If you win, you get a dollar. And if you lose, if you lose, you lose 20. It's like, who, who wants that, right? And, and it's because we can make that in ourselves. If we get a win, okay, something went well. It's not worth very much. But, but something negative, boy, we make so much out of that. And then we've changed the odds, right, that, that are no longer in our favor. And it makes us shrink away from taking chances, right? Even if it's like that chance of a, a slightly better job someone might have, or it's a chance of, of asking someone out when, it, when, the, when the person is shown interest and maybe that could go well, right? Or it's a chance of taking a more scenic route home. You know, it, there's, there's so many small things, but those small things add up to, to what can be a disengagement from life. So what, what you're describing is what's going on in all of us. And again, big traumas, small traumas, they lead us away from seeing ourselves for all that we have in us and all that we can be, right? And, and to see ourselves through this, like this funhouse mirror that sees us in a negative way. And I think you're putting words to that in a way that's very compelling because you're feeling that yourself from a position of, you know, having success and, and overall, like feeling good about the things you're doing, right? But like, even then you can feel you can feel badly. Imagine trying to fight all that in the context of really big trauma that's weighing on you moment to moment, or in the context of depression, right, that may or may not be related to trauma, or in the context of addictive tendencies, right? Like, it's it's hard to, to get where we want to go, even when we're treating ourselves, we're, we're, our heads are on straight about ourselves, right? But it's so easy for that not to be the case, and then we're setting the odds against ourselves. And that's really the change that I'm advocating for in the in the book that like it doesn't have to be that way and it's not a complex esoteric academic topic right there's some basic simplicity and common sense to it that says you know we can use some of that to start making things better now and i really do see that play out in the world around me in my clinical work and casual conversations with people like look the changing that perspective of i'm going to start thinking about what's going on inside of me and why Right? I'm going to start writing about it. I'm going to start talking about it. And what am I really saying to myself? And is it fair and reasonable? Right? You know, that openness, I don't have to hide from anything that's going on inside of me. Let's start off there, is can be incredibly beneficial. Yeah. If I could just add on to your excellent counsel 
and something that I found worked for us. Um, you know, the first time I really got punched in the mouth metaphorically as a, as a, you know, as an entrepreneur is when I cut the cord from my big cushy corporate job. I, I worked at the studios and I left right at the tail end of 2007 heading into 2008. I thought I'm going to start my startup. I'm going to start my own production company, you know, so I cut off, you know, a great salary, full health benefits, all the accoutrements. I'm doing my startup 2008. Let's go. <laughs> and then, you know, the great recession happened and it was literally like a sucker punch. Like I didn't see it coming. I had no idea. And I panicked, you know, um, now a lot of positive, positive things uh, came out of that, but I, you know, I got beat up and, and bloodied, you know, pretty good. Um, the one thing that I learned though, is that the next time I had this great idea, I really needed to get my family's full buy-in, right? Instead of being solo and being, you know, I got this, put it on my back and, you know, venture off kind of like what I did in the first, I mean, I got a little bit of buy-in and buy-off on the idea. Everyone's, you know, give me thumbs up, but I didn't have these contingencies in place. Like, well, what if this happens or what if that happens or what if it doesn't go to plan, you know? Uh, and then, you know, when 2008, nine, 10, 11, 12 ish happened, I just sort of had to scramble and, and panic. And that's, that's when it got really rough because it was so unexpected. Uh, but you know, all these years later, what I learned is to sort of have these family meetings, especially with my wife to say, okay, here's what we're up against. You know, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I, what I think the plan is. Uh, can you add anything to the plan? Can you poke any holes in my plan? You know, where am I going wrong? And like, are we in this together? Because when we, when I really felt like, okay, we're either going to fail together or we're going to succeed together. When I had that kind of solidarity, nothing else mattered. Right. And we, we could, we could go through the storms. Right. And what I hear from that is that you learn something, right. That you can adapt, that you can adopt, right. Which is, which is, okay. Talk to them, have their buy-in. It probably does ease it for them if things don't go exactly according to plan. Right. But, but where's the money at really in what you did? I think it's in decreasing the risk of your own shame right? Impairing you if things don't go well, like they're probably, I'm guessing, tell me if I'm wrong, was running through your head in 2008. So I'm like, oh, somehow this is your fault. Like you, you should have seen the recession coming, right? How could you have made these decisions, right? And then you personalize it instead of saying, look, I mean, people didn't know that recession was coming, right? That's why it hit the world like a ton of bricks. And it's just, it's bad timing. It's not anything that, that would reasonably take your confidence away. Right. But if you're laboring under shame, embarrassment, all those shoulds that didn't work out, right? Exactly. Right. If you feel ashamed of that, instead of saying, look, I, I can pivot, I can figure this out, right? It's harder for me. The world's harder for everybody. Like, I'll put my head down, things will be harder, and I'll get there, right? That, okay, you end up doing that, but you're fighting against the, oh, this is my fault and I shouldn't have done it. Instead of, hey, these are world events, they're throwing tribulation everyone's way and I'm going to be okay with it, right? If you talk to your family, you don't have that extra pressure that then brings the shame if things don't go according to plan. And then you're not in that sense, fighting yourself as you're, as you're figuring your way through. Yeah. And, and, and that's why I, I love your counsel so much. I just think it's so spot on because you're right. It, it really is an outside, uh, uh, environment or forces it's inside. It's an inside problem. Right. Yeah.
Yeah. Great. I'm sure your family wasn't coming to you every day being like, what? You know, you let us all down. Right? Well, I mean, some, sometimes it was like, well, guys, I need you to wait another few days till we can buy milk and Cheerios because I've got to scramble. You know, I've got to go get a third job, you know, waking up at 5 a.m. doing God knows right. what, you know, just to make a few extra dollars. Uh, I'm really sorry, but no, we can't get new sneakers or Christmas is going to be lean this year, guys. Or, you know, and I, I definitely, I felt a ton of shame um, for putting them through that, you know, and that was really hard. Right. And my very strong guess is whatever dissonance they were feeling was, was mild. Right? They're like, you know, everyone will survive with that new sneakers. It's okay. Like they know that you you love them and you're doing the best you can and you're a person who's gonna persevere and, and get to a place that's better for everybody, right? They, they, so where did the dissonance come from, right? Inside of you, right? Right. So so it, it is all inside, right? Or that that's almost always how it is, right? Where it's inside that we limit ourselves, that we start oppressing ourselves. And that is, if there's one, it's like, you know, FDR said, right? That we have nothing to fear but fear itself, right? And and like, I think that extrapolates in so many ways. So here we might say, okay, there's nothing to fear but shame itself, right? Which is, a, you know, an aspect that's related to fear, because then we're fearful we're not going to make it. And it's all that going on inside of us that 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 determines, do we expand our horizons? Do we persevere? Do we succeed? Do we pivot? Do we have more goodness in our lives? Or do we feel beleaguered, insecure, vulnerable, beat up on ourselves, and ultimately shut down and stay away from, from life. And that's how, unfortunately, there are people who can go through life without the family relationships they desire, without the occupational strivings they desire. And like that can take its toll and it can lead to like chronic depression or to addiction where, where like that's the story that carries forward, right? And it just, it doesn't have to be because when I see those stories, it's always because we've been taken away from the truth that's inside of us. So you know, no one comes out of the womb thinking they can't, they can't make it and they're not worth anything right so so we need to look at that and say hey it's like i understand that i can't do absolutely anything i can set my mind to i learned in medical school that that what i kind of already knew but was reinforced that my visual spatial skills are really awful right and i wasn't going to make it if i said i want to be a surgeon like it's it's not, it's not my skill set right but but what is in my skill set is more like the 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 the, the logical progression, like the things that, that lend themselves to neuroscience or to psychiatry. And I see, okay, I can help in this way. Like I, you know, I, it, it's not, I don't have to be lost in the shame of what I can't do, right? There's enough that I can do to make a good and productive life for myself, right? And that's the truth for all of us. And when we don't make good and productive lives for ourselves, it's most often because somehow it's gotten into us that we can't, right? That we're marked for unhappiness, something that's, that's not true. And I love that message that there's always an option, right? Even if you think you're you're up against a wall, there's always options and, and probably lots of options. We just sometimes it's difficult for us to see them or we get stuck back in, you know, an old narrative that um, we don't have to be stuck with. I love that. Can I go back and ask sure. some personal things about um, you and your brother? Uh, obviously you were very close. Um, how long were you in therapy for that? How long were you talking to professional to the point where you felt like you were coping better than you were before? It wasn't that long, 
in part because I didn't, I think, get all the help I really needed. You know, the the healthcare systems, the insurance systems, they're they're often looking to, more to mitigate cost than to say, well, how, what does this person actually need, right? And I didn't know what I needed, so I got kind of a standard. Oh, you have ten sessions with a therapist, you know, and and I and I think I took advantage of those sessions, you know, but I didn't understand that there were roots of like, like my distress even before his death warranted a lot of processing, right? That perfectionism of like, I can't disappoint anyone. I have to stay on this track. And like that I was, you know, I was, I, I was, um, restricting myself so much that, that I couldn't think, feel, go the places I wanted to go. Like that alone warranted so much processing, let alone the shame and the guilt on top of it about his death. But the therapist did a good job of just kind of grounding me to the basic premises of trying to separate those two things of like, yes, you're grieving. Of course you are. And you need to grieve. And like, here's how this kind of can often look over time. And, and here's how, you know, the, the, what you're seeing in your parents and the, in the people around you, like kind of makes and here's what you could watch for like each like, it was very helpful to put that in one place and there are a whole bunch of issues here that are just about you and what you're doing with your life or not or not doing with your life and and it was very very helpful in that way but really i didn't know enough to know like oh that should have been like wetting my appetite for for some real depth psychotherapy and i didn't really know that i i knew it i understood and i got enough out of it and i had really good supportive people and i kind of marshaled my resources and i got myself to a better place um and the therapy was really really helpful but i didn't know what i needed then so i didn't get all of what i needed yeah, I'm, I'm hearing you talk about, you know, getting some of what you needed, but I, I've also had similar experience with with medical professionals, some really great, it's a mixed bag. Others just throw pills at me saying, you know, take this, it'll help you feel better, but it really doesn't solve anything, you know, and, um, and so I've very much been on this journey. Uh, I'd like to share a, f a few more things with you, if that's okay, if this is a please. Oh, yeah, please do platform or forum to do this free to give me some personal advice, because I really think it might be helpful to other people who are struggling. Um, so I've been public with sharing my story of maybe little t, I don't know how to categorize uh, big T versus little t, but maybe let's start with the definition of what is trauma? Uh huh? Uh huh? So trauma is is anything that pushes our coping skills to and beyond their limits, right? It overwhelms our coping skills. And then that creates change inside of us. It creates emotional change. It creates changes in our thoughts and our memories and our self-talk, right? And trauma can overwhelm us in a lot of ways. It can be the classic big trauma, you know, in combat or an assault, right? That's that's just one aspect. I mean, there can be chronic traumas, the additive effects of which take a great toll, or even vicarious traumas. You know, we're fortunate that we can be empathic with each other, right? But that empathy means we can also feel the pain of other people. So trauma can come in a lot of ways, but when it affects us going forward is when it overwhelms our coping skills because that's when it changes what's going on inside of our brains. And there's great science that tells us that now. It's not, you know, it's not esoteric and it's not some pie in the sky. Like, like the, there's real neurobiological radiographic proof that shows us that how these changes happen inside of us when our coping skills get overwhelmed. What what would you say to someone who has maybe the typical um, tough guy attitude or or tough girl attitude of ah you know that happened I'm fine 
but you're not really fine. It's maybe, you know, you're, you're suppressing it or you're putting it out of mind, but it's still there. What do you say to that person? Well, I mean, depending upon who it is, right, there's a lot of routes to try and get to being able to say this. So I wouldn't just say this off the cuff, right? But the message would ultimately be, be something like this. Like, look, you're being really cruel and thoughtless to someone, right? And who is that person? Right. Of course, the person is, is you. Right. This is the right. And and the thought of like even in some very basic ways, like is that what what you would feel about say something else like a mechanical injury? Would you say oh, I I tore my ACL, but like ah, I'm just going to deal with it anyway? Like no, you would you would like want to take care of yourself, right? You wouldn't think oh to hell with it or like you don't deserve help, right? And you wouldn't say that. Most people would never say that about anything physical or mental health if it's somebody else. Right? Oh, you're really suffering from that trauma that look when things change for you, like three years ago, five years ago, ah, whatever. You know, just deal with it. Like so so the thought of like why is it often in us to 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 take away the, the to not get help ourselves, right? And there's the reflexive shame of trauma, right? What's the tough guy or tough girl attitude about, right? It's about like, oh, I shouldn't need that, right? Well, like that's that's not fair or reasonable. Yeah, or my mindset sometimes is I don't want to be a burden on other people. So I will I will just soldier on quietly. And I'll give you some context. So um, I'm adopted. In my entire life, I wanted to find out, you know, who, my birth parents, where I'm from, my identity. And I'm from California. And California state law says that I am not allowed access to my original birth certificate. It's it's in a vault. I petitioned the courts several times over the years, uh, and every time I got rejected. Apparently, you know, my true identity has been a state secret, you know, uh, all under the guise of protecting me, which is ridiculous. Um, and so I went out on a search and I found uh, after 30 years, I, f I found my birth mom. Wow. And. And I had this image that it was going to be this great grand reunion. And I sort of had this dream. And it turns out that she did not want to be found. In fact, it sort of blew up in my face. She um, she felt very threatened. I actually never got to meet her. I sent her a letter and said, hey, you know, through through very clever means on my part, you know, putting little breadcrumbs together, piecing together little bits of information that I had about where you went to high school. I found the um, death records of my maternal grandparents. Um, and just, you know, logic, I, I was able to find her. And I, so I sent her this letter and I got this letter back, but it was from an attorney. And the letter read, in short, uh, Ms. Stewart uh, does admit that she's your biological mother, but she wants no contact. And we're putting you on notice that if you contact her again, we're filing a restraining order. Right. Understood. I was just like, I wasn't ready for that. Yeah, sure. And, and sorry about that. Uh, thanks. Imagine the diff difficulty of receiving that. Well, at first I was, I was pissed and then I was confused and then sad. And I recognize now that I was going through pretty typical kind of grief stages, you know, of, uh, you know, bargaining and then, you know, 
putting it out of my mind, denying it. And then I was really angry. And then I would sort of go up and down the scale of the grief cycle, you know, one through five, whatever those are. Uh, and then people told me, my good friend said, uh, Brian, I think you're depressed. Because I, I, I generally was, so I felt very detached. And I, I didn't recover quickly. I think it was probably a, a couple of years where I was just sort of in a fog of like, what the f fuck just happened? <laughs> like, this is wrong. And, uh, and it was difficult. And, and then I, I kind of came to my senses, you know, closed the chapter on it and decided, you know, kind of pick myself up after being knocked down. And I thought, okay, maybe, just maybe, if I go search for my dad, I might get a different outcome. I'm not going to assume the same thing's going to happen. Although now I know it could. So I searched for my dad. It took another couple of years um, and I found him. And in this case, it was different. Uh, he, he was open to to meeting, you know, he was this, um, he, he grew up in, in Southern California, like Hollywood area, uh, but was very liberal in his thinking, progressive. Then he moved over to San Francisco. He was in the wine business, toured with the Grateful Dead. You know, he was a hippie in the sixties. Anyway, very open-minded. And, uh, and, and so we got to meet and, and start this relationship. And this was just a few years ago. Huh? Wow. Um, but I, <laughs> Talking about the, this traumatic experience has really helped me. And, and when I shared it for the first time, I did it in a public forum very spontaneously. In fact, I was, I was, hosting, um, I was hosting this big event uh, and there was 500 people there and, who all came and paid good money to see the other person, hear the other person. And, and, um, and then I shared my story at the end because I wanted to thank this person for a lesson that I had learned. And you could have heard a pin drop. I mean, it was just people were so like hanging on every word as I was telling the story. And in the end, the lesson for me was that I was sort of playing the victim all these years uh -huh. and almost like waiting for reparations or an apology uh -huh. or f for someone to, you know, f fix wrong the right because I, I had been wronged, you know. And I'd realized that that was never coming. I was sort of waiting in vain. Um, and so I was able to sort of, you know, move past it and get a little bit of closure from that. But I have to be honest, Paul, yeah. it still is, it still haunts me all the time. And so it's, I guess it's a long way of asking, you know, you went through something very traumatic with your brother. I can't even imagine the pain um, I've gone through, through something like this and I, I don't really feel like I've ever gotten over it. Do we get over trauma? Is it something we can move past beyond it? Help me process or how, how should I understand how to move forward? You know? Sure. As I listened to your story, what I was initially really struck by was when you said you had a fantasy of a happy reunion, right? And that tells me that you're searching for something to validate you, right? Because we kind of know, right, a situation like that is so complicated, right? That there's a million reasons why your birth mother might not welcome contact, right? So, so in a sense, the logical part of your brain knew, I don't know how this is going to go. 
right? And it could go any which way and, and still like not have anything to say directly about me, right? Like the logical part of your brain knows, but the emotional part of your brain wanted something. Yeah, I didn't even consider it though, to be honest, because maybe I think too highly of myself, but I thought, I honestly just wanted to tell her that I'm okay. And because, because I'm a father now, I sort of, you know, I flipped the script and I, I imagined that every year, at least on my birthday, she might be wondering, did I do the right thing? Did, did I give my kid to a stranger? And is that stranger hurting my child? Or are they loving my child? Are they taking care of my child? Did I do the right thing? I, as a parent, I, I couldn't help think about that. And really my, my main desire in reconnecting with her is to let her know it worked out. It's okay. I'm happy. I'm thriving. I'm successful. I have my own family now. Like you can, you can exhale. Right. 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 But see, wanting her, I understand that the, the, the desire in you to say that it comes from a good place. Right. So I understand why you would say how, if I can, I'd like to reconnect with her and tell her that that makes good sense to me. But, but where, like, where's, where's the money at right here? It's all in the, in the word need, right? Because then it tells me that there was a need in you to, to say that to her in order to then recognize yourself that, oh, things are going well and like everything is okay. Right. So, so if we had been meeting, say, let's say when you were going to do that, right? Then part of what I would want to have wanted to direct our conversations to would be like, look, this is, it's great to do this. Right. And, and like, if you get to say that thing and she receives it well, like that's awesome. Right. But let's be clear, right. That, that there's something here that you want to communicate that you don't need anybody else to reflect back to you in order for it to be true. Right. Because let's say if you wanted to do that, but you had no need to do it right? Then you wouldn't have had the disappointment, right? The disappointment came from a fantasy, right? That you were going to do something, say something, and then she could reflect that back to you. And then you could feel, gosh, it is true. Like I'm, instead of saying, look, I would have been saying to you, look, your life is in a great place and you're doing well. And, and you need to own that yourself, right? Before you go and do this thing, because we don't know if it'll be well received because there's those million different factors we can't control where she may not want to think about it, it may be painful to her, right? So what you would think would be helpful to her might not be, right? And then she may be rejecting of it. So let's make sure that you're squared away with all the good and true things about you before you take that chance of communicating to her. That's what I think would have protected you because what we're really going for there is the trauma of whatever insecurities the reflection on adoption and on self may have been making in you. Right. We're like, let's square that away. So then you're not at any risk because you don't need anything in particular to happen from this. Yeah, that's excellent advice. And, and I wish I would have had that prep before I would have, you know, and this is typical me too. This is like so classic me. One of the problems I'm still having is two reoccurring themes. And, and I, I feel like I know where they're coming from. They're coming from this traumatic experience, but I feel like rejection and abandonment, feelings of abandonment are triggers for me or, or they're amplified. Like, so if, and just normal stuff, like, you know, I have clients and they're terrific. Once in a while we make a pitch or presentation that we 
that I think we should get for all the right reasons, and we don't get it, and I feel rejected, you know? Right. My logical brain knows better that usually a no is no for now, or it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with, you know, um, their situation it could be budget or timing or personnel. But sometimes I take the rejection, let's call it that, I take it harder than I should. It's amplified. And I can't help thinking that these themes from earlier in my childhood, um, uh, you know, to, to make matters more difficult, my adopted mom was married three times before I was 16. So I have this pattern of like, sort of like, you know, I'm, I'm uh, six years old, you know, getting to know the dad in the family, and then he's gone. And, and then my mom is gone because then she's with the other man, and I'm, I'm left at home alone, or I'm shuffled off to a friend's house. And then she gets married again. And, you know, I'm being encouraged to call this person dad, who I don't really feel a dad connection to. And then a few more years go by, and they get divorced. And it's like, ugh, start all over again. And that, you know, that, that repeats. And so... Um, I, I constantly feel like the rejection and abandonment uh, issues are triggers for me. And I, I don't, it, I'm, it's funny because I am logically aware that it's happening, but I don't know how to resolve it. Right. So it's, it's, it's amazing how often something like that is going on inside of us, right? The specifics different, but, but the theme of like, you logically know one thing, but what you logically know isn't impacting how you're feeling. Right. And it's, it can be amazingly beneficial to put a, words of understanding around it that validate the feeling. If you're telling me I've, I've uh, abandonment issues and, and this kind of vulnerability, and then you tell me the history you've told me, I think, why well, understand why you feel that way? Right. So I want to validate that, right. That like that makes sense in the context of the history. And on top of that, there are probably some very, very good qualities, right. About perfectionism and, and attention to detail and attention to others, right. That, that are, they're good qualities, but they, but they then get used against you, right. You use them against you, right. So if someone says no to something, then aha, there's the evidence that you're not worthwhile. Right. Right. So the idea that if you look at those kind of like perfectionist or like really good traits of like wanting to do a good job and being empathically attuned and you combine those traits with the, the trauma that you've been through, then you have someone who's going to have sort of a hair trigger to feel that way. Right. And if we validate that and say, look, there's no shame in that, there's no, like, that makes sense given how you're built and what you've been through, then what we can do then is de-link it to the trigger. Right. So if there's a trigger and you're like, oh my gosh, someone said no. And I, I feel terrible. You say, like, I understand why I feel terrible, but it doesn't mean that that messaging is true. Right. And now we start de delinking it. I mean, even now, if I, I something with, with someone I'm taking care of doesn't go well. Right. And then I will feel like oh, I'm a terrible doctor and right? I'm worse. I shouldn't be doing this. Right. And I have to stop and say, wait a second, like you're kind of perfectionist about things. Right. And, and like, it, but you're not going to always get things right. Right. Like maybe there was another medicine, that person was having a bad day, or maybe I just made a bad, maybe my guidance wasn't the best. Right. And like, but I can still be what I do and how I do it is that doesn't invalidate it. Right. I have to accept that 
that I have that lack of perfection in me. And sometimes people aren't going to like what I say, or they're going to reject it, or sometimes it won't even be right. Like that's part of being human. And if I'm like, that's what it tells me if something doesn't go well and I go, oh, you're a terrible person and a terrible doctor. I go, Wait a second. Okay. I know where that's coming from. I'm going to validate the, the, validate the feeling because it comes from a place that I can understand, but I'm not validating the message, right? And now I'm separating the validation of self with the beating up on self, right? And, and that can, starts a process that can make all of this much, much, much better. Because then the next time you're triggered like that, it's a little less. And the next time it's a little less. And then that feeling can atrophy in you to where you're not over responding to any rejection, right? As if it's a litmus test on your validity as a person. Well, let me ask you this then, just playing the other side of the coin, because I really don't know the answer. I, I've had enough, you know, I've had enough happen. And, you know, I think I will say that comparisons are awful. Um, but compared to some other people, I think I've had a really great life, a very happy life, very fortunate. Um, that said, I certainly still wrestle with these things, but I don't know if I'm, I'm building up calluses, you know, like when you do pull-ups and you just get better at, because you have calluses and your hands get stronger, or if I'm building this wall around my heart, because I, I have a lot of trouble kind of sitting with my feelings, especially if I'm heartbroken. So the, the dad that I mentioned that I found, my biological dad, my birth dad, uh, we were building this relationship and it was going great. Um, I learned that I had two sisters who I just adore and, um, and we're building this relationship and becoming great friends and, and family. We feel like, you know, we've just picked up right where we, you know, as if we never left off. And, uh, and then my dad had uh, kind of a routine back surgery, um, in 2019 cause he was, had been in chronic pain for a while and uh, he went, he got through the surgery and then right after in post-op, he got an infection and he passed. I'm sorry. It was just like, I have to tell you, it was the strangest feeling because I was devastated and so sad, but I, I also couldn't cry. It was like, well, just an, here's another punch, you know, and and I've learned to take a punch. Uh, and so I started kind of taking that inventory, like, am I okay? <laughs> am I becoming this robot? Like, am, am, I, am I in denial about how I really feel? Can I allow myself to feel the sorrow and the grief of, of, you know, losing my dad like that? And there's this iceberg, right, of you know, I, I didn't have 30 plus years with him. I just found him a few years ago. We're just starting this new relationship and now he's gone again. Like, ah, can't catch a break, you know? Um, and yet I, you know, I don't know. I, it's hard to describe those, the feelings of almost kind of being numb. I don't know if I, I've, I've got the, I've been become tough enough to endure that kind of stuff or if I'm just being guarded now. I don't know. My, 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 
most honest response to that is that I think both the calluses and the idea of a wall around the heart are, are not, they're not helpful things for you or for anyone, right? And I think, well, what, what is going on inside that you deprive yourself of crying about something really worth crying about? right? That what is it that you're trying to prove to yourself that, oh, you're strong enough and you can take punches and you can keep going. Like we already know that, right? It's not helping you to do that, right? It's inadvertently, it makes the calluses. It puts bricks in the wall around the heart because you're taking away from yourself something that I don't think you would deprive somebody else of, right? And that comparison, it never helps us say, oh, I've had a good life compared to others, right? Because that, that then you know, your life is your life and your struggles within it or your struggles within it. It doesn't matter if other people have it better or worse, right? But by looking at it that way, we, we invalidate what's going on inside of us. And then we invalidate our right to feel bad about it. Like you have a right to cry over the sad thing that happened. And that doesn't make you weaker. It makes you stronger. It's not a litmus test of weakness and of invalidation. You had said earlier on the idea of like feeling like a, like a, a victim inside, right? And there's, you know, there's an adage from many years ago in psychiatry that's no less true, even though it doesn't get focused on as much, which is that there's no internal victim without an internal persecutor. Right? So if you feel victimized, well, you're feeling victimized because there's something else in you that is victimizing you. Right? And the persecutor is the part that says you don't get to cry over that. Right? If it cries, it shows that you're weak. Right? So you're going to have to be tough and you're going to have to be able to take more punches. And like that's persecuting you. Like that's not nice to do to a person. It's not healthy either. Right? So I would think to, to, in a therapy relationship, because it's probably it's a good place for a therapy relationship where you feel the trust and you know you feel the good rapport and the positive regard and all that you can you can be true to yourself in that way of like feeling sad about what's worth feeling sad about. And that is anti-trauma. It doesn't make you weaker, right? It makes you stronger in this old idea that like we need to bend or we'll break, right? So if there's some pressure on you saying, hey, bend this way and feel sad, right? Why are you going to stay like this, right? The pressure is still there, right? And, and I think this is all about what happens in all of us is we, we don't give ourselves the, the, the right to just be human. And, and it all comes through everybody's unique lens, right? But I'm hearing you talk about through your own unique lens, right? The ways in which you can be persecutory to yourself and not accepting of what's human in you, right? And then it changes things so you don't get to feel good about the good parts. Like I think somebody, how, how strongly did you swim against a very powerful current to find your father? right? And to say, hey, the odds were that was never going to happen, but you made it happen, right? So to feel good about the fact that you went and did that and you couldn't control, like we can't know the timing of, our, of deaths of ourselves or others, right? So thank goodness you did it when you did it and you got the goodness out of it. And then something happened in life, just like, you know, the, the economic problems in 2008, like, you know, that's not your fault. His death isn't your fault. There are things in life that happen that affect you negatively 
effectively. And if you see the, the truth of that, then the story that you build, it's not one that's just, oh, slanted in the positive. No, it's one that's slanted towards what's true. What I hear in that story, in, in both stories you told of like your perseverance after 2008, right? And you finding your father and building that relationship before his death are stories of somebody who's very empowered and swims against the current and is resilient and perseverant. I hear good things coming. I hear nothing but good things coming from that. The only things that I hear are that are negative are not letting yourself be human and to grieve about things that are worth grieving about. So the story, though, that the part that's about you is 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 positive and isn't it? It's sad if you don't get to own that and to feel good about yourself that you swim against the current and you achieve difficult things right? Yes, you cannot predict economic collapses or, or deaths, right? But you're not supposed to be superhuman. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> um, and as I was just reflecting on how I was feeling when you were saying that, I think if I'm being honest, a part of my almost, I didn't try not to cry. I just couldn't produce the tears. My heart was breaking. My heart was broken. And it was so painful. Um, but maybe I didn't want to go there again with the tears because it was so painful. Like to just fully let go. It's just like, I, it's hard to go through the gauntlet again and again and again, you know. Because it feels like it'll feel worse, right? That if you start crying, it's going to feel worse. But actually, it's like the best defense mechanism we have, right? It pays down the distress inside of us. It doesn't hurt us in any way. In fact, it makes us stronger, right? And and it, so much of what goes on in our minds goes on under the surface, right? We know that true too, right? That you weren't consciously trying not to cry, but there must have been such strong inhibition. Think about to say, my heart was breaking, but I didn't cry. Well, something's stopping you right? And there's so much that goes on in us unconscious that we can bypass by bringing it to our conscious minds. Like it is okay to express. It is okay to cry. And in the right setting, if you're letting yourself do that, you're not forcing anything, right? You're just letting something happen that naturally wants to happen inside of you to reduce that tension. And then on the other side of it, what you almost surely will experience is like, oh, that's actually better, right? That feels better, not worse. Yeah, we've come full circle because, you know, your advice about being verbal about the trauma, talking about it, talking to a professional, to your friends, writing it down, talking in the mirror, getting it out is so much healthier and cathartic than what I'm, I'm doing, which is keeping it internal. And the irony there, right, is just so <laughs> dramatic. That's exact opposite of what I had to be doing instead of internalizing it. And that's, that's how I feel. Like I want to detach from the world. I don't want to talk to people. I want to isolate. Uh, I'm just so tired of the pain that I don't want to experience it again. And so I just, I just, it's flight, I guess I'm running away from it. Well, it's a huge point of the book. One of the primary points of the book is that trauma makes shame in us. It, may, it reflexively creates a sense of shame in us. And then the shame tells us to do the exact opposite of what we should do to be healthy, 
right? And that's one of the things I'm most struck after 20 years of doing this for a living, right? Is it trauma makes shame and we need to look at that shame, then it won't scare us anymore, right? But it tells us, no, you have to hide this away, right? This is saying something bad about you, something shameful. You can't even let it into your own mind, let alone share it with someone else. And that's what trauma, I think, has done to me and to you and to all of us who've been through it in varying degrees. And part of the lesson here that I'm, I'm trying to get through, the lesson of 20 years of this work and of my own life experience and my own suffering is that, that like, we, we need to not do what the trauma and the shame is telling us, which is hide me away so I get stronger inside of you and control you more and more. But to go there and put those words around it and look at it, because then it doesn't control us anymore. And that's really the magic, right, is doing the opposite of what it tells us, which then diffuses it. And the number of times I see people really get better, right? And even in my own life, having very good psychotherapy, the last, you know, bunch of years of my life is, is like, it really does make things better. And I'm like, oh, this is the simple truth of it. All that you have to hide it away and it's shameful and you can't even think about it. That's complex. And like complexity is never consistent with good mental health, right? The simplicity of like, this is hurting me. Why am I not letting it come into my own mind and having some place of putting words to it? That's a simple truth. And that simple truth lets us be healthier. And that's also another big part of the message is that they, the healthy routes are, this, are simple, right? They're not easy to do, but, but, they, but they're not complexified the way that trauma makes these complex thought processes in us that shields trauma, right? And, it's, and the results of it from, from being seen and processed, and it shields trauma from the, the things in us that would let us get back into the driver's seats of our lives, right? Including how we feel about ourselves. Yeah, that's a terrific soundbite, I think, to end on. Um, I, I knew that I could talk to you for another six or eight hours, Paul. I really appreciate your time. This is terrific. Thanks so much. Um, I, I mean, I've, this is tremendous for me personally, but I think it will help a lot of people. The, the, good, the good part of sharing my story like that, that I did, talking about my, my story, when I published it online, it went viral. And, you know, more than three million people have seen it so far. Wow. That's not wow. a big number. It's a lot of people. Well, what really struck me was um, the thousands of emails that I got from people who were also in a similar situation. So in, you know, adoption world, it's called the triad. You have, you know, um, uh, the parents who give up their children. You have uh, parents who want to adopt children who maybe are struggling with infertility or want to adopt children. And then you have the adoptees. And it's this bizarre love triangle, you know, between us three. It's very complicated. And I got letters and notes from each of them saying things, asking me for advice, like, uh, hey, you know, I, we adopted our daughter. She's now 22. And I, I heard your story. And I feel like uh, she ought to know that she's adopted. We've never told her. Uh, you know, and so I was asked, how do we tell her without hurting her feelings? And I was like, oh, oh, so I had to respond. Uh, I think we're already way past that point of no return. However, and you know, so I gave my advice about, you know, wouldn't you like to be able to tell it from your perspective? I'm sure there was good reason, good cause where you kept that secret, but you probably didn't know that that could back, come back and, and, and blow up in your face, especially if she finds out through some anonymous DNA test that you're not her father. 
wouldn't you like to be able to explain it anyway so thousands of emails and so as a result i'm now working on a documentary film uh sort of based on identity and why you know because i described my situation as it's almost like have you ever seen the like national geographic uh films where they take like a bear cub or it's been lost separated from its mother and what does that bear cub do it, it just will sit there and wail and wail and wail and wail almost like a homing device so that the mom can find it and as an adoptee that's how kind of how i feel about finding my roots my identity why Dina to know is almost like a homing device i needed to return to home to make a connection of some sort to have closure or the not knowing whether i was you know the love child of steve jobs and i had some you know a uh, plot of land for me in some kingdom or on the other spectrum if i was the product of a violent crime if i'm a rape baby right. the, the not knowing was the torture and so anyway so i'm 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 in the process of of making this film about identity and right. and knowing who you are and finding out who you are and and all these things. so maybe you know you can maybe i i can consult with you uh separately on this you can offer some psychological uh, medical wisdom can contribute to this. Maybe I would be, look, I'd be happy to do that because as you're talking, although I have a tremendous amount of compassion for the things that you want to know or wanted to know, right? As you're doing that, it keeps going over and over again in my, in my head. Cause I see this so often in ways people do this about adoption and about other things that, that like, it's interesting to know things and I'm not saying that it's not interesting or important to know things, but I, I think some of what you were trying to know, you already knew, right? Like you didn't need to know, or you the love child of Steve Jobs, or you a, a product of rape. You're you either way, and you define who you are. If you look for too much in it, like, oh, it's going to tell me something about myself, then you, then it breeds disappointment, especially if you don't get access to the knowledge. Instead of saying, I'm interested in knowing because it can enrich my life to know, but I don't need to know in order to know who I am. Paul, that was it. You just actually touched on it. It's a very sharp chord, which is all those years as a teenager when i was petition petitioning the courts for access to my original birth certificate to know my heritage so it turns out that you know um, my mom is from scotland my dad is he's jewish <laughs> he's you know from new york originally um, but because it was kept from me it actually fueled my fire and so some of the advice that i've been giving to these parents who've given up uh, who are actually adopting children. I've said, listen, science is coming for your secrets anyway. So you might as well let everything out of the closet. You know, no more skeletons, no more secrets. Secrets only hurt people. Um, and of course, you've got to be age appropriate. You know, uh, my best friend adopted three children. And, and one of the kids comes from a horrific uh, <laughs> home like yeah. you wouldn't want to tell that child until they were at the appropriate age you know maybe 18 uh his origins uh but i still think that uh adoptee if they want to know has a right to know um yes I, I I agree, and I also think that the framing is so important if if because the thought that comes through my head is when whenever a person is learning whatever that answer is i would always want 
to have done the antecedent work to take down the import of it, which might seem like the opposite of what one would do. Like if you were about to find out, just theoretically, I, I would want to have a whole bunch of antecedent conversations that were about, look, what you find out matters in some ways that could be interesting. And also, does it matter one bit, right? It's not going to tell you who you are. So if you're interested in that information, okay, right? But don't put import in it that's not there, right? It's like the old parable of like, you, you, you've got to go find what you're missing in order to realize that you had it with you all the time, right? It's why we love the Wizard of Oz as a culture, right? You know, the, the, the Tin Man wants a heart, the, 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 um, the Cowardly Lion wants courage. Well, they didn't have to go to some fake wizard pulling strings behind, like they, and, and they didn't have to go anywhere. In fact, it was inside of them. Right. So, yeah, you're going to learn something, but you're going to not going to learn what you think you're going to learn if you expect too much of it. But the good news is what you think you might want to learn or are going to learn is already there inside you to be discovered. So I think let's do that before a person decides, when am I going to tell someone? How am I going to tell someone? Am I going to seek that information? What's it going to mean? Like, okay, the first thing that always needs to be done is let's take stock of who that person and who there is and what their thoughts and fantasies are about what it's going to mean to tell someone or to know and make sure that that person is squared away with themselves before they go get that information. Yeah, super good advice. It makes me think too that another underlying issue I still grapple with is control or lack of control. Sure. And I think it probably stems from me feeling like I didn't have any say or control in my life before I was an adult. You know, adults made bad decisions on my behalf and it resulted in a lot of, you know, right. trauma. Right. And, and just so, so, you know, I'm saying this in a way, it's a little cavalier, but just to get the point across, right? It, 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 right. So in a sense, like, like, like I might say like, sure. And so what? Right. Because you have control now. Right. And if you still feel now the lack of control from before, you will not own your control now. So I would want to process how you felt. I'm not saying so what in a way like it, it warrants like talking about and processing. But there's also the so what aspect of it, because what matters is you have control now. And, and if you're going to look at, the, at the, how you didn't have control, you have to look at it from a perspective of owning that you have control now. So you own what's yours, right? And, and that's the, the combination between it's, it's important and it warrants talking about and processing, but it doesn't mean what it might seem to mean. Like, like nothing's going to make you have control. Nothing is going to make you have had control in the past. Yeah. Right. And I would say in a very strong way, it may be that nothing could take away your control in the present, except distress about not having control in the past that brings that lack of control into the present. Which brings us back to like the FDR, that the only thing there really is to fear is the fear of it. If you put it in its place and you learn about yourself and you process and you, you talk about the feelings of not having had that control and you're doing all that from the context of the competent, capable, in control adult you've made yourself. Not 100%. None of us are in control 100%. But are you in control enough to guide your life forward and take care of yourself and your family? Then I say yes. Right. But the answer to that is yes. Then does it matter, you know, so much where you came from, so to speak? It doesn't. Right. Because what matters is what you've made yourself. So I'm not saying that stuff isn't important, but it's got to be in the context where a person owns the truth of themselves now. Right. And doesn't try and learn that truth through something that isn't going to tell it to them. Yeah, I, I think what you have been saying all along 
is really ringing true, which is those feelings of a pain or hurt or whatever I'm feeling at the time, lack of control, it really stems from insecurity. And so when you're sure of who you are and you're sure that, you know, we can we can't control our DNA. You know, you know, you don't get to choose your parents, right? Um, but you do get to control what you do after the fact, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's right. And and so yeah, but I, you're spot on. I mean, you've you sort of revealed my my kryptonite, which is I think it stems back from an insecurity about how I feel about myself. Right. I really need to let that other stuff go and just focus on what I know and what I can control, which is I'm pretty great. And, and I've been through a lot of shit Yes. and, uh, and I'll continue to have hard times, but I, I, I can do it. Yes. Look, it's exactly when I used to, when I used to teach to early stage psychiatry residents, and I've, I say this all the time, I would started saying, look, there are three kinds of people, right? There are people who have real mental health problems, right? They're having panic attacks, they have terrible depression, they have addiction, right? There are people who are dead, and the rest of us all have mental health issues, <laughs> right? And if we look at it that way, that we've all got them, so there's no shame in them. Right. But let's look at them and face them head on. Then we end up exactly with what you just said. Right. The owning that like life will not be perfect. I will not be perfect. There will be curveballs, but I'm doing the best I can. And guess what? That seems to be good enough. Right. And if anything, an, an asterisk and an anecdote onto that is it's interesting that people often feel worse. If you think about it, if you've had to swim against a, a stronger current, right, to get where you are, why would that decrease our confidence in you? If you told me, hey, I was raised silver spoon in my mouth, everything's gone perfectly, then okay, is that going to tell me that I, that I should have more faith in your ability to navigate forward? No, right? The fact that you swim against the current tells me, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm not doubting your ability to be the person you decide to be in the world, right? And it, so if you carry the adversity forward, you undermine yourself. If you see your present self in the context of the adversity you've overcome, now you're strengthening yourself. And that strengthening is, is consistent with truth. Yeah. Well, and the last thing I'll say is I, I was waiting for a rescue boat for a while. You know, I, I threw up the flare. Yeah. I, you know, I was floating in the ocean with my flotation device, getting cold, feeling like I was dying. Rescue boat never came. So uh, I decided I'm going to swim for the shore. Right. And that was my only option. Right. Because look, because you didn't actually need a boat. Right. I mean, so think this is what we... This is what we all, well, sure, look, a boat would have been nice, but you didn't need one, right? And, and right, because you swam to the shore, like you're okay, right? You, di you didn't drown because there was no boat. It was close. <laughs> right, but you didn't though, right? So, so what got you through that? Did you get through that without a boat, without someone else rescuing you? Yes, you did. And what, what, what is the reasonable truth-centered upshot of all that? It's an increase in confidence with yourself right? That if you feel in a desperate position again, which you might, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. You might, I might, we both might tomorrow morning, right? Then you can feel heart and, hey, I felt like this before and no rescue boat came and I'm still here.
right? And that's how you own what's yours, which that's a very strong position to be. Then, then if from that position, you were approaching the, the approach to your mother, right? And she says, no, of course you're disappointed and grieving, but that's not a litmus test for you because you're already owning what's yours when you go this. That's the key to it, right? Is if you're owning what's yours, it's not think about things in a way that feels better. It's think about things in a way that's consistent with truth and think about how much that empowers you to know it'd be great to have a rescue boat, but you can survive without it, right? Then you start feeling, right, I swam against the, the current of a lot of adversity. Like, how is this that this makes me feel less confident about myself, right? And then you own what's yours and you feel more confident about yourself, including, again, you're alive and you don't have, as far as I know, the significant mental health problems. So, okay, you've got mental health issues like the rest of us. No shame. You can own that humanness and still feel proud of yourself and competent to navigate the world. I, I agree, and I also think that the framing is so important. If, if, because the thought that comes through my head is when, whenever a person is learning, whatever that answer is, I would always want to have done the antecedent work to take down the import of it, which might seem like the opposite of what one would do. Like if you were about to find out, just theoretically, I, I would want to have a whole bunch of antecedent conversations that were about, look, what you find out matters in some ways that could be interesting, and also doesn't matter one bit, right? It's not going to tell you who you are. So if you're interested in that information, okay, right? But don't put import in it that's not there, right? It's like the old parable of like, you, you, you've got to go find what you're missing in order to realize that you had it with you all the time, right? It's why we love the Wizard of Oz as a culture, right? You know, the, the, the Tin Man wants a heart, the, 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 um, the Cowardly Lion wants courage. Well, they didn't have to go to some fake wizard pulling strings behind, like they, and, and they didn't have to go anywhere. In fact, it was inside of them. Right. So, yeah, you're going to learn something, but you're going to not going to learn what you think you're going to learn if you expect too much of it. But the good news is what you think you might want to learn or are going to learn is already there inside you to be discovered. So I think let's do that before a person decides, when am I going to tell someone? How am I going to tell someone? Am I going to seek that information? What's it going to mean? Like, okay, the first thing that always needs to be done is let's take stock of who that person and who there is and what their thoughts and fantasies are about what it's going to mean to tell someone or to know and make sure that that person is squared away with themselves before they go get that information. I mean, we were just sitting back, you know, <laughs> chopping it up, reminiscing about the good old days and all that. Tracking my roots, where I came from. And